Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. And welcome in to another edition of Mile High Magazine. I am Murphy Houston, and happy Sunday to everybody. We're glad you're here. Today we have the folks from Coleman, Colorado in the house. Susan G. Coleman, if you, that helps you remember, you know about the Race for the Cure and all the other good things they do, the Pink Tie Affair. And we're going to talk about breast cancer. We're going to talk about what they're doing. And we're pleased to have uh, the CEO, the boss, Diane Primavera. Did I say that right, Diane? Yes, you did. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And how long have you been there, Diane, with uh, Coleman, Colorado? I was hired in April of 2017. So not quite a year. Not quite a year. You're probably still getting yourself situated I'm over still there. learning a lot, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you brought uh, Mary Coleman with you to help with that a little That's bit. That's right. You? Mary's the expert on yeah. education. So, And she's uh, with the program. You're the program manager for Mission Initiatives. Did I say that right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's start with Diane and, and let's update things about the Coleman mission and maybe what you guys are doing. Can you help us with that? Diane, everybody knows about Susan G. Coleman or Coleman. Why is it Coleman, Colorado? I've had people ask me that. Why is it Coleman, Colorado now? Well, Coleman, Colorado serves a 22 county service area. Um, we go all the way up through northeastern Colorado and up through Fort Collins and over to Aspen. So we serve actually 22 counties in Colorado. So that's why it's Coleman, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And so what's going on with Coleman, Colorado? What's uh, anything new, anything different, any different research things that we should know about? Well, Coleman uh, has decided to have a bold goal. We've been around, you know, for 25 years, and uh, you know our, our mission and vision has always been to have a world without breast cancer. So we have a new CEO at the national headquarters, which is exciting, and she has some um, really exciting things that she wants to work on. But we have a bold goal by 2026 to reduce the m- number of breast cancer deaths by 50%. And wow. to do that, yeah, to do That's that, we have a couple cool. of uh, things we need to focus on. Uh, one is to focus on people with metastatic breast cancer, and the other one is to make sure that we continue our message and get people in for early detection and early screenings. Gosh, that's so important, isn't it? Yes. That early detection is, believe me, I know, mm-hmm. been through that. And we'll have to talk about men and breast cancer a little bit, too. God, I love getting that word out. Mm-hmm. Imagine how stupid we are as men that we, well, we can't get breast cancer. Oh, really? You want to see my scars? <laughs> I'll, sh- I'll share the truth. So the bold gold, how's that going so far, Diane? Well, you know, we are focusing a lot of uh, of our research monies on metastatic breast cancer. And, you know, once upon a time when I was diagnosed 29 years ago myself, um, I believe that they could tell a woman she had one of three different types of breast cancer. Now, uh, they can detect over, you know, there's lots of different subgroups of the cancers and things like that. And there's over 200 different types of cancer, breast cancers now that they can identify. And by being able to identify so many different types, they can better target the therapy. And uh, so they're making really great progress, but we have a ways to go. Wow. I didn't know, realize there's 200 different types of breast cancer. Is that right, Mary? That's correct. With all the different hormone receptors and different ways that um, the cancer reacts in bodies to different proteins and things that are present in one person's body versus another. And that has um, opened the door to ident- really specifying what type of cancer, what's going on with that. And as Diane said, then we can provide treatment that is really targeted to that hormone re- that's going on that suppresses it so that it stops growing. Um, that might work in one patient over another. And have re- what progress have researchers made about a cure? I mean, is it getting closer all the time? Because you guys have raised millions and millions of dollars, as other breast research groups, too. But we don't hear much about the success. No, unfortunately, the cure is still elusive. We have right. not been able to pinpoint that specifically, especially when it comes to the aggressive metastatic cancers, um, breast cancer in particular, in our case, what we focus on. Um, we have made a lot of progress in research. You know, being able to identify 200 different types of breast cancers wow, is yeah. a milestone in of itself. You know, that alone has made the survival opportunities for so many women and men diagnosed with breast cancer that much more positive and likely, um, as long as it's detected early. That's always the key, isn't it? It always comes down to that early detection. And, and, and uh, Diane, maybe we could talk a little bit about genetic testing. When I went through my breast cancer, my wife's a, a two-time survivor. In the beginning, when she had it like 20-some years ago, genetic testing, there was a little talk about it. We did it. But now, this last round, Carol, last year, me, three years ago, uh, genetic testing was pretty big. So talk about the importance of that and getting it done. Well, there is uh, some insurance companies pay for the genetic testing, which is important. It used to you know, be 
cost prohibitive, prohibitive, uh, but now it's around what five hundred to two thousand dollars. Once upon a time, when I went to get genetic testing, it was four thousand dollars, and I couldn't afford it. So it really identifies just a few uh, genetic mutations at this point in time. I know they're working on trying to identify additional ones. Um, there's some upsides and downsides to the genetic testing. Sometimes people want to know because knowledge is power, and it allows them to um, be more vigilant about their bodies and their um, treatment and things like that. Other people don't want to know. Um, I have two daughters. One of them wants me to get the genetic testing because she wants to know. Right. And the other one says, please don't do it, Mom, because I don't want to know. I'm going to be vigilant anyway. So um, there's there's different opinions about genetic testing from a patient's perspective. Well, yeah, we did that same thing. And we, I have three daughters, and they all wanted to know. And the crazy thing is, both my wife and I did not have the indication of breast cancer, which really blew their minds. Well, how do, how do you get it? But doing genetic testing doesn't always mean you won't get breast cancer, does it, Mary? That's correct. It's actually one of the myths about breast cancer that we're really trying to bust out there in the community. As a lot of people think family history is the only risk factor, the only indicator of somebody possibly getting breast cancer, and that's just not the case. Actually, up to 90% of breast cancers are diagnosed in somebody that has no family history, has no genetic mutation. And that's what our research is still focused on, is trying to figure out what what might cause breast cancer to form in one person over another um, outside of having a genetic mutation. And we just don't know that. That's why research continues, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we have been able to identify some things that do elevate your risk outside of gene, gene mutations um, that might play a factor in somebody having an increased chance of getting breast cancer, but it still doesn't guarantee one way or another. And what are some of those risks while you brought that subject up? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, a lot, you know, being a woman and getting older are our two greatest risk factors, and that's why it's so important for every woman to get screened and for every man to be vigilant about their health and their body because they're also at, at risk of getting it. Other risk factors include um, not having biological children, having biological children after the age of 35, um, starting your period before the age 12 or starting menopause after age 55. Um, if you did have radiation to the chest um, before the 1980s, that might increase your risk as well. And so there's a lot of things um, that play out in a woman's life cycle or a man's life cycle that might be increasing their risk. Um, to get breast cancer. Things to be aware of, for sure. No, absolutely. And it, yeah, a lot of people think, oh, it's just family history, but it's just it's just not. Yeah. And we should talk about men and breast cancer a little bit. Diane, can we talk that, uh, to you about that, about men should be aware that they as well can get breast cancer. And, you know, we're men are kind of silly. If they find lumps or they find issues, they don't they don't take care of themselves. They have a tendency, oh, it's going to go away or I'll be all right until it's almost too late. Isn't that true? That's correct. And men should um, watch for the same sorts of things that women watch for with their breasts, you know, if they find a lump, if their nipples inverted, if, you know, different things like that. And what we've, uh, what I've recently learned, I think Mary might have already known this, is that um, a man can carry the breast cancer gene and not know it. Um, we had a, a man recently that spoke at one of our events who had um, the breast cancer gene, and he's concerned, you know, that he could pass it on, you know, to his children. So, um, Men do need to be aware of it. And if they've had a history of prostate cancer in the family as well, um, they're finding that there is some link uh, between prostate cancer and breast cancer. Well, how would you know if you have the breast cancer gene? You have to get tested. There's no Purposely other way. Purposely get tested, Correct. right? Yeah. Undergoing a genetic test like we talked about yeah. previously is, is the only way to, to know for sure if it runs in your family or not. Wow. that's uh, Most men would never think of doing that. And, and maybe somebody, can, one of you guys can explain about the BRCA gene. Because when I went through the uh, genetic testing, they're talking about this BRCA gene. I had no clue what that is, and probably most don't. Yeah. If you can talk about that, Mary? Absolutely. Through research, we've been able to identify two specific genes. They're called BRCA, BRCA1 or BRCA2. And if you have those, the genetic mutation. So can we do know that cancer forms because our genes mutate, right. going back a little bit. And so sometimes that's mutating from lifestyle um, choices or things that are going on, like some risk factors that I mentioned earlier. Other times it's a genetic pass down, and that's what's causing those genes to mutate and to form cancer. So we know that if you have this BRCA1 or 2 mutation, you are much more likely to be to develop breast cancer in your lifetime because it's a genetic predisposition to getting the disease. So we've been able to identify those two specific genes that are triggers for breast cancer in, in individuals' bodies. And that's for men and women. Correct, yes. That genetic testing. And can that change 
I mean, if you went through genetic testing, oh, look fine, and there's nothing that can that over as you get older, can that change? And maybe there might be some something to be concerned about. Not through hereditary purposes. So your your BRCA one or two, if you have the mutation, that's going to be present whether you you look at it or not, and it's not going to form over time. Just because you don't have the mutation does not mean you won't get breast cancer. Um, through other, just because our genes still mutate in cancer forms, regardless of, like I said, family history being a part of um, the, the, what's the right word? The problem? Uh, the pro- or part of what's what's um, causing the cancer to form. Sure. So, it, so if you don't have the gene, it's still important to be vigilant and be aware of all those other risk factors and get annual screenings, um, both for men and women. Um, but if you have those mutations, you have to be even more vigilant um, and maybe even take prophylactic measures to prevent it because your chances are so increased for getting breast cancer. It, it just seems the story continues, Diane. Every time I turn around, you hear about somebody else getting breast cancer. And you guys are vigilant about raising money and, and battling and, and trying to, to stop the process, but just doesn't seem to be getting any better on the outside looking in. Well, you know, we hear that, but that's probably not true. Um, well, good. I think. <laughs> I hope I'm wrong. Perhaps, you know, one in seven pe- women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. And, you know, that could be due to a couple of things. One is that we have better um, ways to detect breast cancer now. You know, we have 3D mammography and, you know, things like that. So we've pushed early detection, and that's been really important. Um, the fact that we've been able to isolate so many different types of breast cancer and actually target the therapy has um, given a lot of hope. But as Mary mentioned, cancer is elusive. It's a virus and it changes. And, and so it, it makes the, the cure a lot more difficult. But if, you're detect, if you have early detection, your chances of surviving the illness are, you know, like 95% or above. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. If you're diagnosed at stage zero through stage two, the chances of surviving past five years, which is the general um, measurement when you're talking about cancer diagnosis, is up to 99%. Um, But that decreases to 26% if you're diagnosed at stage four. Well, yeah, I would imagine. And I was blessed. I was not even barely stage one when I was detected. And I don't know if you heard that story about how I found out about my lump with wrestling with my grandson, and he headbutted me in the chest. I went, wow, what's that? That doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And, of course, with working with you guys with Coleman, Colorado, I got checked immediately, and my doctor said, well, I, you know, I think it's a cyst, but we ought to do a biopsy. And he called and said, boy, you got it. But that early detection saved me no radiation, and I had no chemo. It was like, got it, surgery. Had a male mastectomy. Everything is cleaned out of there, and my health has been very good. But to go through that process, I was such an education for a man, because since my wife was diagnosed, and of course she gets her annual checkups and all the does her own self exam, for me to have to go through that, I had to do a mammogram. It was like I really felt sorry for the technician who had to give me a mammogram. <laughs> I'd never done a man before. I said, well, let's work together and do the best we can. But you don't have as much tissue. I go, sorry. <laughs> let's just do it. Yeah. And then it all turned out well. But I, I find now that my daughters, who are pretty young yet, are still they're getting mammograms already. And I know, is that still a struggle with insurance companies? I mean, do you, do you have to have a history of that or... Even if it's not a direct history like a mom or a dad or if it's a grandma, can you start getting early mammograms? Well, we passed legislation in Colorado several years ago. In fact, it was the legislation that I sponsored when I was in the legislature. And one of the things that we wanted to make sure the law said was that um, people who are at risk would have their mammograms paid for by the insurance industry. And so... um, for example, my daughters, when I, I was diagnosed when I was 38, and they're supposed to start mammography screening when they're 28, 10 years prior to when I was diagnosed. And so because we've written the law that way, um, insurance uh, pays for that examination. That's very good and mm-hmm. very helpful. But my daughters really haven't had an issue with that. In fact, a couple of you actually had MRIs. And thank goodness, no problem. But it seems like it's loosening up as far as the insurance companies working with those that have had a history of breast cancer. And let's just back up a little bit. Mary, I'll address this question to you. Our listeners may not be familiar with terms like aggressive breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer. Can you maybe explain what that is? Yeah, well, like we were saying, there's different types of breast cancer. And when it comes to, there are some cancers that are we considered aggressive. One is called triple negative breast cancer, which means that they're negative for three different types of hormone receptors that um, they test for when they first identify that it is a cancerous tumor and they do the initial 
um, a chronotype and, and figure out what's going on there so they can have the treatment done. And so those aggressive cancers can be at any stage. And if those ones that are aggressive, you want to treat them hard and, and fast and get in right away. Um, metastatic breast cancer is a um, type of breast cancer that is generally, if it's diagnosed, in a, diagnosed for the first time in person, it's generally diagnosed at stage four. Um, it also could be part of a recurrence that a woman might experience. And that essentially means that the cancer has spread beyond the breast tissue. Um, so it might be in the spine, the brain, the liver, the lungs. Essentially, it's metastasized to other parts of the body. Um, and most of our breast cancer deaths do come from women um, that have had the cancer metastasized. It's a tough road if it's diagnosed late, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. Yep. And that's generally when um, we find that a lot of, and it's not always because it might be that the cancer was just that aggressive, that it went from being non-detectable to being a stage four within a year. Um, and so that's why it's also really important for women not to only get annual mammograms um, appropriate for them and their risk factors, but to also be vigilant and be aware of their bodies and, and their health and to, if something changes, even if they got a mammogram six months before, to still be confident that they should go to the doctors and get it checked out. Because only a doctor can determine if it's something benign like a cyst or a normal part of, of changes or if it's something more um, dangerous like cancer. When my wife first got diagnosed probably almost 25 years ago, the year before, there was nothing. And then she went in for a mammogram, and, and they detected something. And it was almost stage four, just that quick. And the problem was for her, it was so far, it was deep. It was already burning almost through her lung wall back in the, and it just, it was like right to the wall. Let's get it all done and do what we got to do. But it was a scary time. No, absolutely. And it is for a, for a lot of women, you know, especially those that are diligent and are getting those annual mammograms and then to be diagnosed so late um, when the screenings are there to hopefully get the cancer detected as early as possible, if it is going to be present in the body. And so when it is late, it is a, a shock to some women. Yep. Sure. Sure thing was at our house. Mm -hmm. uh, Diane, what are some of the barriers that women and men might face getting breast cancer care? That's always a, a lot of research. I know when my wife was first diagnosed, I mean, I, I took total control and sure you get doctors recommended, but you need to really get out there and find out what's going on, don't you? Correct. A lot of it is lack of insurance or people either don't have insurance or they're underinsured. Um, that oftentimes is a barrier and that's where a lot of common dollars come in. We um, make sure that people who are least able to afford it um, get the care that they need. So another barrier might be transportation. Oftentimes people don't oh. have transportation to and from uh, medical appointments and, and that can be a barrier. Um, we've also found out that there's cultural barriers um, to getting care and to getting screening. So one of the priorities that uh, Mary identified several years ago in our community um, needs assessment was um, that we need to target certain communities in our in our service area uh, to make sure that they um, understand that they can overcome the barriers that they have to getting not only screening, but, uh, but the treatment as well. Right. Uh, and some of the research has showed me, I didn't know this, but apparently some communities have an increased risk of getting or even dying from breast cancer than other ones. Why is that, Mary? Yeah, well, going back to, we don't know for exactly why, you know, for African-American women, both here in Colorado and at a nationwide level, they're less, they're slightly less likely to be diagnosed than white women with breast cancer, but they're up to 29% um, more likely in Colorado to, be, to die from breast cancer and 40% more likely to die on a national level. And a lot of that we, we know attributes to um, African-American women more likely getting a, diagnosed with those aggressive breast cancers. They're more likely to have that triple negative breast cancer, for example. Um, and we and there might be other biological factors that we haven't been able to pinpoint quite yet, but I know there's a lot of research focused on identifying why those disparities exist. Um, there's also socioeconomic barriers, um, communities that are less likely to have insurance as a whole. They're less likely um, to have regular transportation to it. They're less likely to have employee coverage insurance. Um, and things of that nature that just contributes to late-stage diagnoses and deaths. And, and Coleman, Colorado, obviously helping these communities, are you not? Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, two ways that we go about granting or helping communities. One is through a grant-making model. So because we're not a clinic ourselves, we're not medical professionals, we work to identify which of, which of those clinics and hospitals are working with these communities so that we can infuse dollars to help offset those costs of the care that they receive. And that helps a lot. Um, but we also know that it's not just about paying for the care. It's about education and, and advocacy. And so we also work on the ground by going out and educating communities about what are risk factors, what are screening guidelines, where can they go to get care if they don't have insurance or other resources, and how can we protect their access at a, at a national and, and state level with policy. 
And a couple of other barriers are that oftentimes people don't have paid leave from their work. And if you're you're the sole provider for your family and you have to take time off to get your screenings, um, that cuts into your monthly budget. So um, that's been an issue that we've talked about in the office, how we could address that. And then the other thing is sometimes people who all of a sudden have insurance really don't understand how to use it. So, um, you know, that's an education process as well. And how do folks find that out? Can they just reach out to Coleman, Colorado? Is that possible? Mary? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. You're always welcome to call um, or, or email us. Um, we also, you know, people have stopped by in our office before to to ask questions and to find resources. And, you know, we can provide that at the end or it's just at comancolorado.org. Um, all of that information is there as well. And you have a lot of grants. You have a grant program, do you not? Yep, correct. Currently, we have 14 grants out in the community. Our, our next cycle starts on April 1st, so we're just finalizing the um, the organizations that will have grants going into the rest of the year, but we do have current um, 14 currently active ones. And also, doesn't that help you reach your bold goal there, Diane, uh, with all the stuff you're doing and helping people? Every, everything we do, we're trying to reach our bold goal. We always have our mission in front of our faces, you know, with everything we do on a daily basis. But yes, um, that does because um, one of our priorities is education, as Mary mentioned, and we're trying to educate people about the importance of early detection. And then, of course, the screening part, um, our grant dollars pay for screening and they also pay for treatment. So all of that helps us reach the bold goal. Um, another thing that people don't understand is 25% of the money that we um, raise goes to our national office, and that's used for groundbreaking research. And next to the federal government, Komen uh, National is one of the biggest funders of uh, breast cancer research. Is it, and I might be wrong about this because I've done some work with like the CU Cancer Research people. Aren't they doing a lot of that breast cancer research right here in Denver? Are they not? Yeah, there actually is a researcher at the CU um, Anschutz campus that has a grant from Komen, the national office, to um, look at um, the way that... Um, The link between obesity and breast cancer. Really? Yes. And so she's right there in Colorado. There's also researchers across the country and the world that have Komen dollars that are working, looking at, you know, every different aspect of breast cancer. There's a woman in North Dakota who's trying to identify a blood or urine test to detect breast cancer. Um, wow, how so simple might make would it more, that be? Yeah. Exactly. Might make it more simple and more accessible to women um, who don't need necessarily need to go or don't have resources to go get a mammogram. And a lot of that blood research seems to be growing because being a man that like a PSA screening, I mean, it, it couldn't be any easier. It's a blood test. Boom. Go from there. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the goal of what Coleman, Colorado's pushing for. Yeah, absolutely. We know that would make a difference for a lot of women. It wouldn't be the only, you know, wouldn't get us ultimately there, but it would definitely t- keep us in the right direction. So you guys conduct a needs assessment every four years. Can you talk about that a little bit, Diane, what that is? Yes, Mary actually conducted the last needs assessment, but it's a a way for us to identify um, some of the, as it says, the needs in our community in terms of breast cancer. So um, once we do the needs assessment, then we try and target our monies towards um, meeting the needs of the communities. And, you know, Mary might want to chime in because she did the one before I even came to Komen. Yeah. How does that all work? Yeah, so what we we start by getting our baseline. What are the measurements that we want to look at? And we use the Centers for Disease Control um, goals that they set every 10 years on where they want the country to be. So, for example, when we did the last one in 2014, um, what we knew is that at the national level, the CDC was recommending that 80% of all women were getting screened at least every two years from breast cancer. So what we did with that was come into Colorado and look at our 22 counties here um, at every level, you can match at the city um, and county level and seeing, well, who is already getting a mammogram every two years? Which groups, um, both um, by social groups and by geographic regions, are getting screened already um, as, as one example of a measurement? And then who is not? And how can we infuse dollars and researchers into those communities to help them get closer? That's big time. That's valuable information, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it ended up being about a 100-page report. So we really Whoa. take it seriously on you know, using our, our limited resources and our trusted dollars that the community is giving us to make sure that it's going to be the most effective. So we're making sure everybody gets across that finish line um, when it comes to, to breast cancer and that we're not leaving anybody behind. Don't want to do that, for no. sure. Uh, we're talking, that was Mary Coleman, Program Manager for Mission Initiatives with Coleman, Colorado. We have Diane Primavera, who's the CEO uh, for almost a year now. Diane, you're getting your feet wetter then. What did you do before you became involved with, you mentioned legislation. Were you, like, at the Capitol? Uh, yeah, I was um, a state representative from House District 33, which is up in the northern part of the city, Broomfield 
Superior, the Boulder County side of Erie. Erie. Um, I was term limited after four terms, and I chaired the health committee for the state of Colorado for four years. Wow. You really know what's going on down there, right? Worked on lots of cancer legislation. I'll bet you did. Good for you. That's really good things. And, and maybe, maybe, Mary, we can talk about how Coleman Colorado works with other cancer-focused organizations. There's got to be a lot of teamwork and work amongst those organizations to, for success. Oh, absolutely. You know, we want to make sure there's two reasons why we really value collaboration in the Colorado communities. One, to make sure we're not duplicating resources. If somebody else is already providing something to the community, we don't want to overstep on that. We want to complement what's going on by making sure that all resources and all needs are being met um, by us and by our partner organizations. And we also collaborate just to make sure that breast cancer is being talked about in in correct ways and is, is on the table. You know, one of where we sit on the Colorado Cancer Coalition, for example, which is housed at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. And they help set standards for screening guidelines for all types of cancers. So we're there to make sure that breast cancer is being talked about and it's being talked about accurately and in ways that's actually going to help the community. It's good things. Mm-hmm. Diane, can maybe you could address about some of, since you're kind of a politician, uh, about policy priorities for 2018? Yes. Um, well, for one thing, I just want to add a little bit more to what Mary... Go um, at it. Go do it. We decided at the Capitol um, when I was there that we should form a cancer caucus, which is another way that uh, Coleman has collaborated. Uh, they've been down at the Capitol working on different public policy um, issues. I was one of the co-chairs and co-founders of the Cancer Caucus, which continues today. So in that light, um, when I was down there, I worked a lot with Coleman, Colorado. Um, some of the things that we did was we... Um, got the breast cancer license plate on the roads. It used to be committed to a cure. Sure. We decided that the only thing it was really committed to at that point in time was building roads. So we came along with Coleman and decided to have the join the cause license plate. The pink plates are now the, um, they were like the top four, the fourth most popular plate on the road. And so in order to have that plate, you have to give $25 extra. Right. That $25 goes to healthcare policy and financing. We wanted to make sure that we could do that because we could leverage more federal dollars if we put the money in at healthcare policy and financing. So each license plate generates $75 to go for treatment treatment of pe- for people who otherwise would have no treatment for breast cancer. So Gotta that, love was, that. that was one of the things yeah. we did. So if you don't have a pink plate, um, go out and get one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we made sure that uh, mammography was in statute and that people starting at age 40 and those at risk would have their mammograms covered by their insurance plans. I know one of the things that we worked on that we weren't able to get um, passed prior to my leaving the legislature was early detection. Because oftentimes if a person gets screened and the doctor finds that there's something funky on um, one of the pictures, they need to come back in for what's called diagnostic mammography. And diagnostic mammography is not covered, nor are MRIs or ultrasounds typically. And oftentimes you have to go that extra step to really diagnose whether or not a person has um, breast cancer. So um, that's one of the things we're working on, you know, and... um, we also have a bill up this year that Coleman, Colorado is supporting with uh, Representative Michelson Janae, and that's to make sure that people who have metastatic breast cancer, where it's spread to other parts of the body, uh, don't have to go through step therapy, um, which means they, if they change insurance plans, they don't have to go back to a different medication that may or may not work. They can stay on the same medication that they have. You guys are busy. We are very busy. <laughs> yeah. And at a federal level, too, our office is, is constantly making sure that federal dollars for research of breast cancer at the Department of Defense and the Center for Disease Control is at a substantial level, or at least at continuous levels, to make sure that those that research dollars don't dry up as well. Good thinking. Uh, we're almost out of time here, but I wanted to touch base about some of the fundraising events you might have coming up in uh, 2018, some ones we've done before, and raising money for research. Can we... One of you guys talk about that, Diane? Well, we have three major fundraisers. Um, Race for the Cure is something that, uh, an event that everybody, I think, has heard of in Colorado. And so that's one of our big fundraisers. Then we have the Pink Tie Affair, which um, is more of a gala type thing. This year we had it uh, just a few weeks ago, and it was a great Gatsby theme. It was really lots of fun, and so that raises money for us. And then we have a snowshoe for the Cure um, every spring. And that's to stomp out breast cancer as well. The other thing is that people can hold their own third-party rallies, we call them. So we have lots of golf tournaments, tennis tournaments, curling, things like that. Um, If anybody wants to have their own event and raise money for Komen in addition to these three events, um, 
they're, we're happy to help them do that. Yeah, well, the best way is to go to comingcolorado.org, and you can find all information. There's a link to sign up to volunteer for us if you want to give your time. There's a donation link if you're able to financially support our work. Um, you know, and with going back to volunteering, you know, we need help on advisory councils, so, so individuals out in the community that help direct where our funding goes. We really listen to them, and we really want to make sure that we're, he- we're you know, we're not just lying on data and numbers to make those decisions. We're also relying on the stories and what's happening in the community. So we always need more people to come in to help that, as well as just putting on our events and other, other things of that nature. Well, Diane Primavera, Mary Coleman, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for all the good work you're doing. Keep it up and let us know how we can help you here with a Mile High Magazine anytime getting the word out, okay? Thank, thank you, you so much, Murphy. Yeah, thank you guys. And thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. We've seen the television announcements playing the last few months and spotted some of the posters and bus shelters, all conveying the same message. Stand up, Colorado. Stand up. The movement to end relationship violence. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. The Colorado Coalition Against Domestic Violence is 110 domestic violence, community partners, and individuals across the state, all committed to a society free from violence and abuse. We've been seeing the marketing, and so now it's time to take a closer look at the coalition's goals and the state of relationship violence in Colorado with CCADV Executive Director, Ms. Amy Miller. It's not so much that there have been increases in domestic violence. Um, I mean, I have seen an increase in the number of criminal cases filed, between 2015 and 2016 by about 2,000 or so across the state. But actually, that fluctuates from year to year. Yeah, sure. And as far as we know, because so much domestic violence is underreported, only about 40% um, actually ever gets reported. And so, and that's probably even lower right now because of the fear among the immigrant population to either call for help if they're experiencing domestic violence or for somebody who witnesses to call law enforcement for help because of the fears around deportation. Really? Um, so people have actually not been coming forward as as often. And I don't have an exact, like, number about how much that reporting has dropped. But anecdotally, I know that's what I'm hearing from people across the state and also hearing from the local domestic violence advocacy organizations who provide services that that immigrant population has declined in terms of who's coming in for assistance. Now, now you in bringing the immigrant population up, that's something I really didn't even even think of. Coming from other countries, probably the whole notion of domestic violence is different that they bring in to America than maybe what was taking place back where they came from. So are we are we actually having to do some education around them to so they have a cultural change into what's acceptable here and what isn't so that they can report or they can know that they're in a situation that they need to do something about? Sure. I mean, there are organizations first of all, that specialize in working with the immigrant and refugee population in Uh our communities. And they do educate around, particularly around the um, social mores of this country and the laws of this country, because that's probably what's most different. Um, Other than some cultural differences that might affect what those dynamics of domestic violence look like in a relationship, um, they're strikingly similar dynamics otherwise um, from one country to another, even among different populations in this country. um, It looks a lot the same. Um, And so I'd say that's probably where the most of the focus is on educating that population. Um, And that would be the same for the local domestic violence organizations the community that provide advocacy and services, Um, you know, making sure they go out and do outreach in the community to different populations um, to educate them about what domestic violence is, what is criminal within domestic violence behavior, because it's not all criminal. 
and what the laws are and also what their services are to let people know that there's free confidential help if you're being abused um, or that there's help if you're the one that's being abusive um, to your intimate partner. So they, they do a really great job of doing outreach around that all over our state. Another thing I think I saw on your website, too, that a lot of people don't think of when they're talking about domestic violence, everybody, the focus tends to go to between people that are married. And on your website, you also saw teenage dating or dating abuse as well. And that's an area that doesn't get talked about a lot. Are we finding more incidents of that increasing that we need to start educating our teenagers and our youngsters what good behavior is as well? I think we're more aware that relationship violence starts early um, in people's lives. Sure. And that it can seem like it's happening more often, but I think we're just more aware. Um, But with that population of youth and young adults, um, specifically between ages 16 and 24, yeah, that population is at the highest risk of dating violence. Really? Yes. And actually, um, we know from research that it starts as young as 11 years of no, age. No, 11? Mm-hmm. Uh, Where, and, do they, where do they yeah, get this stuff right? from at 11? Are, are they maybe mimicking what they see in their households? I think so. And yeah. people are... I think, you know, youth are starting to explore um, dating relationships earlier um, and earlier. And I think probably social media contributes to that in some way. Yeah. But I think, you know, the more like advanced as a society we are, Mm -hmm. the younger um, youth become aware of everything around them in the world and that other people they you know, see in their lives are in dating relationships yeah, or, yeah. you know, committed relationships or whatever. So I think it is really important for people to talk about it. Yeah. Um, no, I think no, it's no, critical. It You're exactly right. I'm critical just... for parents, right? Yeah. To talk to their children um, because we also know from research that one in three um, teens that are experiencing or have experienced dating violence don't ever tell anybody about it. So, you know, you can't expect that kind of disclosure to happen. Yeah. You got to talk to your kids about it directly um, and take it seriously. That's, I think, one of the biggest problems in regard to that particular issue is that because they're youth and young adults, people uh-huh. don't take those relationships very seriously. So, yeah, you know, how could the abuse and that yeah, relationship I was ask you that. be said, serious. But, uh, you know, you have sexual abuse that happens between youth. You have the same kinds of other abuse that happen, like psychological or emotional abuse, physical violence that happen. Um, sometimes it even escalates to the level of homicide, just like it does in an adult relationship. And we've seen a few of those over the last several years yes, in our have. state. Yeah. So it... It's just as serious, and adults need to treat it that way and ask questions of kids, um, whether they're teachers or whether they're parents, you know, or a mentor or whoever, a grandparent, whoever it is in that child's life. Um, It's something to be aware of and to know what those warning signs are. If you think about it, did our parents... Side of the birds and the bees and where to go get a job and all that. That's not a topic that a lot of parents know anything. Well, we would even think of to uh, counsel their kids about. Right. Only about 50 percent of teens say that anybody ever talked to them about the issue of dating violence. So that's yeah. a huge missed opportunity there. And if you if we're talking about one in three Um, youth that are experiencing dating violence and we're not talking to 50 Mm percent we're missing some of those youth sure with more traditional domestic violence are we uh, have we come to a spot where we have enough safe places for women and families 
uh, if they're caught in an abusive relationship. Do you have, have any research toward that at all that you can share with us? Well, the answer is no. Uh, we do have a whole network of domestic violence shelters and transitional housing programs across the state of Colorado, but they're turning away the last numbers I had. They were turning away over 15,000. 15,000? Adults coming forward for emergency shelter on an annual basis. So one of the things that we've done at the Colorado Coalition Against Domestic Violence is about two years ago, I started a housing program. Yeah. We had never had anything like that at our organization. But we know that housing is the number one barrier to actually being able to leave and stay out of an abusive relationship. Uh, So they need some place to go. That's right. It's the biggest barrier in our state. So. You know, when I became the executive director of the coalition, I wanted to do something to to address that. That yeah. should not be a reason why somebody has to stay in an abusive relationship or become homeless, because that's the false choice that we're putting people in. Well, some people would think maybe they can go home to another family member or something like that, but perhaps some they, are, do. they are embarrassed that it happened and right? they don't want to want to do that because that family member is going to say, well, why are you really here? Right. So some people do that and that's still considered homelessness. And some people don't have that option because they were actually purposely moved away from their friends and family. So they would be isolated or that person that's abusing them has isolated them from their entire support network. So they don't even have that to turn to. So we started this program so that we could work with the local organizations around the state that provide Uh direct services to start up new programs so that they're able to offer people, get people connected to long-term permanent housing in the community so that we are bringing down that turnaway rate slowly but surely. I don't have numbers yet because sure. that um, project actually just launched last May. Okay. And it won't wrap up until this December, mm-hmm. although um, those organizations are also in the process of applying for funding right now to keep those going. And other organizations, because we're expanding this across the entire state, are applying for funding right now. Um, to start up their own new long-term housing programs for survivors of domestic violence. You were talking about across the state. Is domestic violence more prevalent in urban areas than in rural? And then I guess people in rural areas would have to, if if a woman needs to get to a safe space, she has miles and miles where she has to go. It seems as if it's in Colorado, which is urban and rural, that uh, domestic violence can be more of a... um, not an issue, but it's trying to resolve it in a rural in the rural area. It's probably harder to do. That's right. So I think the prevalence is about the same okay. wherever you go. Whether you have as many resources available to you, whether you have as many barriers um, in an urban environment as you would in a rural environment. I mean, you mentioned the distance that somebody might have to travel to even get help um, through an organization. And it can be hundreds of miles sometimes. There is that kind of distance in our state to the closest domestic violence organization. One of the things that those organizations do is sometimes, you know, they're able to pay for somebody's transportation or they have their own vehicle. Or sometimes they even have, you know, staff use their own like personal vehicles to go get someone or help someone get around in the community. Um, But there are many barriers like that, many more barriers for people living in rural communities than there are in urban communities. Um, So it is that much more difficult to become safe, to leave a relationship, to get to court. Um, you know, to, oh, yeah, to, just to go to the county court, right? Yeah, 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 to to get way. if if they fled with the clothes on their back, and that you know to get somewhere where they can get um, clothing, where they can get food, um, trying to find housing, sure. um, all of these things become much more of a challenge, 
And one of the things that's really interesting about that, uh, however, is that the the local domestic violence programs that are in rural communities are very creative in how they help solve these problems. I would think so. They, they have, have to. to be creative. Yeah. And so some of the the newer or the best or promising practices that have been developed over the years in addressing domestic violence actually come from our rural um, really? organizations. Yeah, yeah, because they have to be more creative because they don't have the resources at hand. That, That's right. That that they they could immediately apply to help somebody. With. That's right. And in a small rural community, trying to have any kind of privacy or confidentiality around what's happening to you is really challenging too. Where you know most everybody knows everybody and knows everybody other's business. So what you're really saying is that in order for a person to get out of an abusive relationship, they almost have a three-step process where they have to find a place of safety then they got to find a more longer-term living situation and then they also worry about who knows you know in the community itself and so when the question comes up well why doesn't she just leave him or or why doesn't he just leave he uh it's a little more complex than that it's much more complicated than that and it's it's all those things that you just mentioned and it can be if you have to get established in another community, um, getting your kids into a new school, right? Yeah. Um, getting a new job. I mean, there's you're rebuilding yeah. your life, mm-hmm. basically. So, and then you might be having to deal with the legal system too, whether it's criminal or civil. There's a lot yeah. involved, yeah. and all of those things are so challenging often just for any of us, right? And then sure. if you're also dealing with the fact that this person might be pursuing you um, because they want to get that control back over you, they're stalking you, they're threatening you, they're taking you to court, saying they're going to take away the kids, you know, forever. I mean, all of these things, all that right? All goes on. We all balance risks in our daily lives. Yeah. You know, any decision that we make, there's some kind of risk involved, right? Yeah. So people who are in an abusive relationship are dealing with those and making decisions based about those daily risks, and they're dealing with the risks that they know already from the person that's been abusing them. So it's counterintuitive, but sometimes it's actually safer to stay in a relationship until you can get some things lined up um, and... Get the courage to leave because you're living in an atmosphere of threats and intimidation and coercion. And you've been you might have been physically abused already and with threats that that'll happen again if you try to leave or, you know, if you don't do things a certain way or whatever. It's almost like. I think it's helpful for people to, to know that it's way beyond physical abuse, right? Right. And sometimes there's not even ever any physical abuse that happens in these relationships. Um, but to know that there's this atmosphere that's always there of um, intimidation, um, of, of threats, of fear um, that's real and it's intense. It's almost like being a hostage yeah. oh, in sure. your relationship. Getting a better handle on eliminating domestic violence is our focus on this edition. Joining us is Amy Miller, the executive director of the Colorado Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We'll gain additional insight with her on our next edition. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay in your game. And we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Melissa Moore. Hi, it's Melissa Moore. Thanks for joining me on Mile High Magazine on this Sunday morning. Uh, Something that you may not be familiar with, but that I want you to learn about, it is the Rocky Mountain Lions Eye Bank. And Robert Austin, who is the public and professional relations manager, is here with me. Good morning. Good morning. So tell me a little bit about, I've never even heard of the Rocky Mountain Lions Eye Bank until I found out about you. Tell me a little bit about what you do. Sure. I'm not surprised to hear you say that. A lot of people haven't heard of us. Um, the Rocky Mountain Lions Eye Bank is the nonprofit organization that's responsible for the recovery and then the transplantation of donated eye tissues from organ donors in Colorado. 
So when I think about any kind of organ uh, donations, I think about, you know, my driver's license yep. and checking that box because I'm an organ donor. But I guess I didn't, I, I don't know why. It just never occurred to me who would then be responsible. So you're responsible for the harvesting and the transplanting? Right. So our organization, right, that's exactly it. So we recover the the, the coordinators or the eye tissues from the donor. Okay. And then we match it up with recipients and make sure that it gets to do their transplant surgery on time. So we handle everything from start to finish. Okay. So who do you have then on staff? Obviously, you've got doctors, I would assume? Uh, We have our medical directors. Those are ophthalmologists that um, direct everything that we do. However, our recovery staff um, come from a variety of backgrounds. Most of them science or medicine um, in some some manner or or another. But um, And we're spread out throughout that two-state area that we cover. We cover most of Wyoming as well. Oh, okay. So talk to me about, because I, I admit I'm a little naive, I think about an eye bank. I'm picturing, you said cornea, I'm picturing the whole thing. No, it's usually typically just the cornea. That's the okay. clear front part of the eye. It's where your contact lens would sit. Okay. And that's really responsible for about 70% of the focusing power of your eye. So the kind of blindness that a cornea transplant treats is corneal blindness, and that accounts for about 10% of all blindness okay. um, in this country. Our eye bank did just over 2,600 transplants last year. So I'm just going to ask you some of the questions as I was talking to like girls in the office. They're like, so if I have blue eyes and I get an eye transplant, do I still have blue eyes or am I going to have the color of the person that I got the eye transplant from? Right. So the whole eye is not transplanted. Okay. That's what I'm just making right. sure we're all exactly. clear on. It's the clear part is it's what you're talking about. the clear front part of the eye, kind of the window to the eye. Okay. And then that is put on the recipient. Right. So the recipient's diseased or damaged cornea is mm-hmm. removed and the, the donor's cornea is Put in place and sewn in with very, very, very fine stitches. I bet. The first cornea transplant was actually done in 1905. So it's been over well over 100 years. It really hasn't changed too much um, since then. It's been pretty straightforward. Now, there are different types of, of transplants now that you know, have evolved, but the, the basic is pretty much the same. Glaucoma. Is that something that would be eligible for a transplant? No. No. So glaucoma is an increased pressure in the eye, and that pressure puts pressure back on the the structures in the back of the eye, the retina. Mm-hmm. Um, however, sometimes they put little valves through the wall of the eye to relieve that pressure, and those pressures can be, those valves can be covered with donated eye tissues. Okay. Uh, sometimes, sometimes the cornea, and sometimes the white part of the eye. Yeah. So obviously, it's much more complicated. I'm thinking very simplistic. Of okay, you take one eye out, you put the other eye in. Yeah. Not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Okay. <laughs> not I was yet. gonna say, has that ever been done? No, not yet. Okay. That's what I was wondering. Uh, so who can be an eye donor? I mean, we check it off on our licenses, but who actually is eligible? So you know, it's it's every tissue that you can donate, whether that's you know or organ, all have different criteria. So I think the safest answer is don't worry about it. Just mm. decide if you want to help others uh, after in the event of your death. And later on, they'll decide if that's possible and what can be donated. The number one reason people don't sign up to be a donor, incidentally, um, through our research we've learned, is that people think they can't for some reason or another. Hmm. Uh, I'm blind as a bat without my own glasses, right. so no one will, will benefit. Uh, I'm a cancer survivor. I have diabetes. I, I'm a couch potato. Whatever it is. People find or believe that they're not healthy enough. And the truth is just about anyone can sign up. Okay. Um, And so don't worry about whether you can or not. Because, you know, if you sign up today and you don't die for another 50, 60, hopefully even longer Mm -hmm. uh, number of years, who knows what will be transplantable by then? True. So it's whatever um, can be used. Is the only way that you can sign up by your driver's license and checking that organ donation? No, it's by far the most common. Okay. Uh, but you can come to the iBanks website at corneas.org or there's donatelifecolorado.org, which is our state registry. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, 70% of the people, almost 70%, between 68 and 70% of the people in our state are signed up. That's one of the highest in the country. I didn't know and that. I think that says a lot about the people in our state. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. does. Um, how common, especially here in Colorado, are eye tissue transplants? So, um, like I said, I think last year we did around 2,600 transplants. Not all of those were in Colorado. So our eye bank, we're an international eye bank. So we look locally first for a recipient. Mm-hmm. We can't find, match it up. Then we look domestically through other eye banks, and then eventually we'll, we'll transplant it overseas if we need to. So I think last year we ended up about a third, a third, and a third. And from the time that um, 
the eye tissue that can be donated is harvested. How long do you have? Like, what's the process? You know, if it, a lot of us who watch the medical shows, you see some kind of an organ transplant and they're rushing to the helicopter and they've got the little cooler. What's it like for an eye transplant? Right. So the, the cornea is living tissue. So time is our worst enemy. Um, but most of our tissue is transplanted within 72 hours. So we have a solution that we store the cornea in that keeps it uh, nourished and, and viable. The outer limit of that is about 10 days. Also, tell me this. I was just thinking about this. I know that with a lot of different organ donations, it has to do with blood type. Mm. How does that work with the eyes? Right. So the cornea doesn't have a direct blood supply. It's transparent. And so blood type doesn't matter. Left and right doesn't matter. Eye color doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. Um, so it's, it's pretty wide open. And how long, if somebody is needing a transplant, how long are they usually on that list for? So here in Colorado, because so many uh, people in our state are signed up to be a donor, we don't have a waiting list at our eye bank anymore. Uh, we've eliminated our waiting list. In fact, in Colorado, we have a surplus because of our donor uh, pool and the willingness of people in our state to give. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to help other eye banks in other parts of the country or the world where they don't have that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a huge thing for us. So corneas can go in from one person can go into any other person's eye. Pretty much. There are some matching um, the size of the cornea. Okay. Um, And on the back of your cornea, there's a layer of cells that don't regenerate. What you're born with is what you get. So high cell counts will tend to go to younger patients because we want them to last a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Lower cell counts will go to older patients typically. Usually the donor and the recipient match in age plus or minus 10 years. But once in a while, we do find a 70-year-old donor that can help a 20-year-old, mm-hmm. or we we'll, might have a 20-year-old donor that can't help someone their age, but can help someone much older. So um, there's a little bit of matching, but it's not by blood type or anything. And I know you've got a cool project coming up, and it's called the Circle of Light Photo Project. It's coming up on March 9th. Tell me a little bit about this. I heard about it, but I wasn't quite grasping what it was. Right. The Circle of Light Photo Project is an art exhibit. And um, this year, it's uh, our host gallery is Artwork Network, uh, down in the Santa Fe Arts District. Um, it's an exhibit of photographs that were taken by people who were blind and had their sight restored by cornea transplants. Legally blind, you're talking about? Yeah, so in various degrees of blindness. Some were, okay. were all legally blind, and for some it was imminent. We actually have a few photographers this year that are waiting for their second eye to be transplanted. So because um, they, they rarely do them at the same time. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's amazing the photos w- that we get in this project because we ask people to take photos of things they appreciate seeing again. Mm-hmm. So there's everything. Uh, we get everything from food to <laughs> grandkids mm-hmm. to just, you know, our beautiful state. And uh, it's fantastic. I think it's important. It's so cool because they uh, these people tend to see things that the rest of us kind of just don't see because it's we just don't pay attention right. in the same way. So we, we take our sight for granted so much. Oh, absolutely. So it's a, it's a really powerful exhibit. And our opening night is Friday, uh, March 9th. Um, tickets are on sale at our website, and it includes food and wine and beer, and, and it's a really fun night. That sounds fantastic. How much are tickets? They're $35 for the regular admission. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. And how many photographers are you going to be featuring? We we received um, photos from, I think, 26 photographers. Okay. And um, there are 29 photos that were up on the wall, and all of those are for sale, too, to benefit our mission. And um, so I'm not sure how many photographers ended up being up in mm-hmm. the exhibit, but okay. all of the photos are on display through a, a slideshow as well. That's- it sounds wonderful. And you were just talking about how so many of us, and I think we do, we take our eyesight for granted. Absolutely. Somebody who gets their eyesight back, what kind of things do you hear from them? You know, it's, um, boy, it's, it's a very emotional thing. I think one of the, the things that I feel at the iBank we're so privileged is that we, we get to hear their stories, and we get to hear the stories about the donors as well. Mm. Um, my department facilitates the letter writing that goes back and forth between the donor's family and the transplant recipients. And so those are so important because the recipient gets to talk about how their life has been changed, and the donor's family gets to talk about you know the, the legacy that their loved one left behind. And um, so, yeah, they're really, really good stories. So I think it's hard to pick any, mm-hmm. any one thing that sticks in my mind. Mm-hmm. But um, you can imagine going through life looking through a piece of wax paper, basically, and then all of a sudden having 20-20 vision the next day. Um, and for some transplant recipients, that's reality. Wow. Um, others, it can take several weeks or months for their vision to stabilize. But for many, um, they see right away. And that's a huge, huge impact on someone's life. Um, where there's, you'll hear people say that organ transplants save lives and cornea transplants and other tissues, you know, enhance lives. Mm-hmm. But for someone who can read to their kid for the first time or who can drive right. or who can 
prepare their own meals or who can do things without having to adapt, um, have special ad- adaptation. It's pretty cool. I was going to say, they go in not being able to see clearly. And if somebody, you know, if you wear glasses and you feel like you're blind without glasses, imagine that there's just no glasses. Like there's nothing you can do. And then they wake up from surgery and all of a sudden everything's in focus. They're seeing. That's amazing. Yeah. It's usually a day or two, but yeah. 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 Pretty cool. I mean, that's still so quick. I didn't realize that about the letter campaign. Yeah. You know, it wasn't that long ago, 10 years ago or so, it was kind of forbidden <laughs> that they couldn't know anything about each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we actively encourage them to, to do that. It's cathartic for the donor's family to talk about their loved one and the gift that they left. And it's really nice that the recipient can say thank you. Yeah, that really is wonderful. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Robert Austin of the Rocky Mountain Lions iBank. Uh, once again, uh, big, I, I love your fundraiser that you're doing coming up here on March 9th. It's called the Circle of Light Photo Project. Everyone who has entered a photo into the project uh, has been a transplant recipient. Correct. Okay. And once again, tickets are $35. And what is the best way for them to buy tickets? They can go to our website. It's corneas.org. Um, and right there on the front page, it says buy tickets. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for being here. I thank sure you enjoyed for it. Us. I'm Melissa Moore. Thank you so much for joining us here on Mile High Magazine. And for more information, once again, just head to the website. You can check it out there as well. And that's corneas.org. And we were just talking with Robert Austin, who is with the Rocky Mountain Lions iBank. Have a great morning. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine. A look at the issues and people shaping Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.